next week, uh, things are going to be different. We're having one big gathering. Uh, one big gathering next week uh, out in the parking lot. So we've mentioned this before. We're going to use our outdoor stage. Uh, we are asking you to come in person uh, to bring a chair or lawn chairs for your family and then to bring a picnic lunch. So it's going to be at 11 o'clock so that we can uh, worship together, have a gathering together, and then stick around, eat some food, and hang out. Uh, we are going to be celebrating communion together. Uh, it'll be the first time really ever that the whole church is able to gather together and be part of that. So I hope you're excited about it. Uh, practically speaking, uh, there'll be some parking here on site, but we'd ask if you are you know, able to walk, uh, park up at the middle school or on the street, that would be great. Please don't annoy the neighbors by parking in driveways, that kind of thing. And, uh, and yeah, I hope that you're excited. Uh, other practical things, there will be no uh, video live stream next week. Uh, we really want to encourage everyone to come together, to be here in person, and then the following week, uh, we are only going to provide a video link uh, if you email us. So if you're tuning in online uh, today and are, have been in the habit of doing that, um, this is going to be less convenient for you, and that is a little bit the point, uh, that we want to try to encourage everyone to be together um, and be in each other's presence. Uh, so if you, if you aren't able to leave your home, if there's you know, extenuating circumstances, medical reasons, please email us. We will give you a private video link, but our hope is that really we will all get back into the habit of uh, being here in person, gathering together, worshiping God, and uh, that we can enjoy that. So that's everything that's going on. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then today we're in Psalm 47. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that we can gather here uh, in each other's presence, but most importantly in your presence. Uh, I pray that as we um, devote some time and attention to your word, Lord, that we would do so uh, expecting uh, to hear from you. Uh, it's so clear in Scripture that you speak to us through your word and through the ministry of your spirit. I, pr I pray that both would be at work here right now. And I pray in spite of my own sin, in spite of my own fallibility, you would use the words that I say, most importantly, the, the words that I point us to in your word. And God, that you would bless us, you'd encourage us, even convict us. And I pray that you would build up your church. I thank you that we can gather. I thank you for the guests that are present here I pray, Lord, that this would be a fruitful time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Tim said, uh, we are in Psalm 47. We're going through different psalms uh, throughout the summer. Um, as a way into this psalm, I'd like to tell you about uh, a man. His name is Arnold Toynbee. Uh, he is a British historian, I guess was a British historian. He's not alive anymore. Uh, he was writing and working around the early part of the 20th century, and he became very well known. Uh, so well known that he, his face was on the cover of Time magazine, tells you that there was a, a time in our history where we'd put historians on the cover of magazines. Um, so he was very well known. He wrote uh, this multi-volume set called A Study of World History. He basically looked at all of world history, all of human world history, and identified the major civilizations in world histories. There were 34 of them, he said, by that point, so like, like Greece, Mesopotamia, Rome, that kind of thing. And he really wanted to see what was it that made them rise uh, to power and prominence and then made them fall. That was his, that was his goal, kind of chronicling how that, how that happened. And uh, here's uh, a sentence that wasn't written by him, but uh, one of his editors kind of wrote this as a conclusion, kind of what he figured out. So you don't have to read the 12 volumes. This is basically it. Uh, said this, societies always die from suicide or from murder rather than from natural causes and nearly always from suicide. 
So what he means there is it, it doesn't tend to be the case that civilizations just kind of fall apart. There's always a reason for it. Either a threat from outside, that would be the murder, or he says, more likely, more often, it's from inside. There's something corrupt at the, you know, inside of this society, civil war, uh, some ambition. Think of Alexander the Great who had to keep going and going and going, trying to conquer the, the whole world, and eventually it always falls apart. We see this in the pages of history. We see this in the pages of biblical history. Think of uh, like Nebuchadnezzar. His pride gets the better of him, and, and when his son takes over, eventually things, things just fall apart. Same thing with King Solomon. So what's the point? Why am I telling you this about our history, about the nature of nations and civilizations? Well, it's, it's because this kind of thing, this, this rising and, and falling, is always the case when it comes to human endeavors. But there is one who stands apart. There is a king, a leader, a ruler that rules above all the earth, a true king, and his rule and his reign never falls. And of course, that is the God of the Bible. That is the, the, the God who rules and reigned, has ruled and reigned since the beginning of civilization to today. And that's really what we're going to see in our psalm, in Psalm 47. When we see the true kingship of God as revealed in the word, it's very beneficial in terms of our understanding of, of the world in general, but also of our lives, of how we are to organize and orchestrate the way that we live and the way that we worship. So that's going to be our focus. In fact, uh, today, instead of three points, we have one main point and then two implications from that point. And the main point is this, God is king over all the earth. God is king over all the earth. You're going to see this very clearly uh, I'm going to read the first four verses of our psalm and then pause and, and, and make some comments. That first point will take the, the major chunk of our time, and then the last two will be sort of in the last half. Um, if you have a Bible in front of you, you might notice it says that this is a psalm uh, of the sons of Korah. They were uh, called the temple singers. They were those, part of the Levites, that King David said, okay, you're going to be the ones in charge of leading uh, singing and worship at the temple. So this is one of their psalms, if you're wondering what that's about. This is it. This would be something that they would sing. So here is uh, the first four verses. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. So we'll pause there. And it's pretty obvious uh, why the one point is the, is the one point. There's a great king over all the earth, it says. One of the things, uh, though, that's pretty common in the Old Testament, I'm not sure if you've, you've noted that, noticed this, is that uh, the people of God are, are often told to have no other gods but God. Uh, you see this a lot. Here's one example, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This is repeated like 48 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. It's just all the time. And the impression you might get, if you weren't totally familiar with kind of biblical theology, is that there are a whole bunch of different gods out there, but that the God of Israel is the best one. That, that's the one you want to worship. He's the strongest. That, that's, but see, that's, that's not exactly what the Bible is saying. In fact, even today, there are many, many uh, people who would be happy with that interpretation. Most of the Eastern re religions who have a pantheon of gods, they're very happy to add Jesus. Another god? Sure, that's great. I've got a lot of gods I worship. I want the best ones, so let me know. I'll add them to my, 
to my roster, but that is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is very clear that while there are many things, many deities that people worship, they are not real gods at all. They are idols. They are empty and they are powerless. And one of the best ways this is emphasized is by Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah talks about, uh, he says, sort of imagine a man who cuts down a tree and then he does two things with the wood of that tree. Uh, And here's what he says. Here's Isaiah 44, starting in verse 16. He says, half of it, half of the tree, he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and he says, aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. That's a funny thing to say. Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. So the obvious point he is making is that this this is foolish, that this is nonsensical to take a piece of wood on the one hand, burn it, cook your food, and then on another hand, pray to it and expect it to answer you and to actually, actually help you. And this foolishness continues to this day. Idolatry continues to this day. For some of you, it it may in fact be idols made of wood and metal. You may have grown up with shrines in your home or some manner of, of that sort of idolatry. But for all of us, all of us take the stuff of this world and we form it into things that we worship. We, we create for ourselves things that we live for, things that we look to for help, things that are just part of creation, like, like romantic relationships, like money, uh, like achievement, education, uh, our work, all, all manner of things if you look around you, that are, the inclination of our heart is to think, oh, that, that's the thing that's going to help me. That's the thing that's going to answer me and, and bring me help in times of need. But in fact, they are just idols. They are, they are hopeless, and they, are, they have no real power to help us. They're just like a piece of wood. Now, for some, this, this isn't actually that big a deal. I was talking to a guy recently about things of faith. And he said, you know what? For me, I, I just don't believe that there's a, like a God in the sky. He said, but for some people they do, and that's fine. He said, you know, I can see the benefit. He said, there's a placebo effect for religion that I think is, is totally fine. Me- meaning, people like to believe in stuff and it makes them feel good, so, so that's great. And for a lot of people, we think it is great. A lot of us don't think too deeply about what exactly that we are doing or what are, what are we believing in. It just, it just feels good. So we do yoga, just feels good. We meditate, just kind of feels good. We even come to gather the church. We don't, we're not really thinking deeply about the fact that there's a God who says he is king who rules over every aspect of our lives. We're just thinking, man, it, it sort of makes me feel good to, to be here. And the problem is the same, though, that it's fine to feel good in the moment, but what what happens when we really need help? I mean, placebos are not real medicine. If we had the choice and we were sick and there was medicine that actually worked, none of us would choose to be in the control group and just get the, whatever it is, saline solution. We'd, we'd want the stuff that actually can heal us. And that's the truth that we see in the pages of Scripture. That's what our psalm is talking about today, that there is one true God, the true king. And the reason that he is true is because he actually has the power to help us. He actually intervenes in our lives with power and might and love. And that's what we see in this first little part of our, of our psalm. Verses 1 and 2, praise, praise God, he's the king. Clap 
for reasons of joy, and then uh, verses 3 and 4 give us some of the reasons we have to be so joyful, to see that he is king. So let's look at them a little more closely. Verse 3, we see that one of the ways that God works in power is that he subdues our enemies. Now here's verse 3 again. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. Uh, if you were an Israelite uh, and you heard that, you would think to yourself uh, immediately of the taking of the promised land. Uh, the promised land, if you remember, when they first saw it, they were very scared because it was full of giant people, giant walls, mighty armies, and so they looked at it and were like, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, and then they were disciplined by God because they should have had faith, and they went to wander in the desert. When they came back, when they finally had faith, and they, and they just went into the promised land trusting that somehow they'd be able to conquer these armies, that's what happened. God did subdue the, the enemies. Uh, Jericho's walls fell down. The, the mighty armies fell. What, what God was showing them is that he was not just a piece of wood that made them feel good. That when they actually had need, he intervened in mighty, powerful ways. That he was worthy of their praise. And the people who were singing these psalms all through generations were remembering that time. Remembering that is the kind of God that we have. He subdues enemies. The second thing we see uh, there in verse 4 is that he provided an inheritance for his people. Um, verse 4 says it like this. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. Now, the pride of Jacob is, is like an expression uh, which refers to the land of promise when it was all divided up for the tribes. So they conquered the land by the power of God, and then also in the book of Joshua, uh, he brought all the tribal leaders and said, okay, here's, here's the land that you were promised, Judah, uh, Levi, Benjamin. Here's the land for all generations. And just think about it. I mean, that was an exciting moment. If you think about the history of God's people up to that time, they had spent hundreds of years in slavery, decades wandering in the wilderness, and now, finally, they've got this land of, of plenty, and, and they knew that their children and grandchildren, everyone would now have this, this land. They, I mean, they were just overjoyed that God had provided for them because he loved them. And once again, God was showing that he wasn't, he wasn't just an idea to make them feel better. He was an actual person who would make promises and then keep those promises. But notice, the implication of the psalm here is not just the God of Israel is king. Like, he's real. He's great. It's, it's not just that. It's that the God of Israel is king for all people, for all time. Look back to verses 1 and 2. Look at, look at the alls. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. That's the truth that I think we need to hear this morning. That God is still king over all the earth that he is still subduing our enemies. He is still providing an inheritance for his people. He is still helping us with power and with love. And the reason I think we need to hear that is because I think it's hard for us to believe, frankly. I think a lot of the time, we look around, we, we think to ourselves, you know, I don't see many walls falling down. I don't see armies being subdued. In fact, what I see in my life is that there are some enemies, they always seem to get the better of me. When I think about my life, I, I, I think to myself, man, I don't really see that kind of demonstration of power. If, 
if God was really king over all the earth, I mean, wouldn't things be different if he could really control everything? Like if his sovereign rule was such that he could control every event in the universe, every molecule on earth, like wouldn't my life be different? Wouldn't my life be better? Well, it depends what you mean by better, frankly. In fact, it's very important how you would define better. Because the thing about us is we're not really great at identifying what the real problems are in our lives. Like, we're not fantastic at identifying the real enemies that are out there. We're not very good at figuring out what it would mean to be truly blessed by God. Like, if we could make a plan, those plans often, often don't go well. What we think is, look, if God is king over the whole earth, then there's a lot of things in my life that that, that king should take care of. Like, a lot of circumstantial things. Like, I've got a list of people, frankly, that God, if you could just, you just take care of these people, my life would be a lot better. There's a lot of things at work with our finances, with our health. God, there's so many things wrong with my body. If you were really like king, like a king who could just tell things what to do and they would do it, not just people, but every, everything in the universe, man, there, it would be so much better if you really loved me, if you were really in control. So we, be, we begin to doubt. We think of Israel and we think, look, they got a promised land. They got a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that, that was like on this earth. They experienced it. Isn't that, isn't that what it means to have a God who actually is king and can control things? We need to think more deeply about this than we tend to think. Because there are some things that remain the same. God's power has not diminished. His love for us has not waned. He is not less of a king than he was before. In fact, he is doing the same things that he did back in the time of the promised land. For example, he is still defeating our greatest enemies. It's just that he's doing it in more fundamental, more impactful spiritual ways. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is speaking about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Starting in verse 26, it says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Notice that same language, that he subdued our, our enemy. But notice also it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if, you know, during COVID, you've played many video games. There have been a lot of video games going on in our, in our house. And one thing that even I know about video games is that the last enemy is the greatest enemy. Like the final level, the big boss, when you defeat him or it, whatever it is, robot, whatever it is, that then you beat the game. Like there are no more enemies to be defeated. And here we see that the final enemy itself is death. Not just physical death, spiritual death. And that that is what Jesus conquered for us on the cross. That he defeated death itself by being righteous, by being put to death, by being raised to new life. When we have faith in him, we, we also have conquered death. He's, he's removed sin, removed the effect of sin, disarmed Satan, everything that we needed to really, needed to happen in our lives for there to be blessing, he did for us. He defeated those enemies. Hear me. The difficult people in your life are not your greatest enemy. The challenges at work are not your greatest enemy. The financial troubles 
even the cancer cells in your body are not your greatest enemy because none of those things can take away your eternal life. I mean, they can make your life more difficult, but that's like, what, 80 years, 90 years. There is an eternity of life that is yours because spiritual death has been conquered. That is what God has done. That is what he is doing. He's helping us to remember and realize that, that that has been done for us. But there's more. There's more. By virtue of the cross, it's not just that our enemies, our real enemies have been subdued, subdued but we have an inheritance, a much better inheritance than we really understand or realize. Now, I think um, for us who live in the metro Vancouver area, promised land sounds like a pretty good inheritance. I think we realize, we recognize that land... Like in urban Vancouver, I mean, that, that is an almost miraculous gift. If we could get that, like if we knew that our kids and their kids and great-grandkids would have land, I mean, that would be amazing. How are our kids ever going to be able to purchase land? I don't know. But even that amazing gift, even the connection between like the Israelites getting this promised land, if we were to get that, we, we would only enjoy it again for 89 years. Less. And then it would be gone. But the inheritance we receive through Jesus is so much greater. Look at um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Those are great words, great descriptive words for this inheritance. It's not things that can rust and decay. These are things that will never go away, that we will be able to enjoy for all of eternity, that the peace, the righteousness, the sense of intimacy with Christ, the victory over sin, the sense of purpose. All of this is ours through the cross. All of these things are things that will never die that sustain us through the difficulties of this life. And we, even now, I mean, we just get to glimpse them a little bit. I mean, the peace, the joy that you have now in Christ is better than anything else on earth, but it's still like just, a, we're seeing it uh, through a mirror dimly. We, we don't see it fully. In heaven, it's gonna be ours, ours perfectly, and ours forever. See, God is king over all the earth, right here, right now. Our greatest enemies have been defeated. Our greatest inheritance is already ours. God actually is active. Not in giving us our best circumstantial life now. Not in, in bringing us an easy life, but that's, that's not a lack of love or a lack of power. In fact, I think it's a demonstration of love. Because I'm not sure about you, but when life gets easy, uh, I tend to take God for granted. I tend to, to get distracted by the things of this world. By, I mean, my prayer life tends to wane. My, my time in the Word sometimes tends to wane because things are, are going great. But when there's challenge, I'm, I'm reminded yet again of who my God is and how much I need Him. And so because God loves us, because He is King, he will stop at nothing to make sure that we constantly see our need for him, are constantly aware of his power and, and his love. 
Think of it this way. Only the true king of the earth would be able to orchestrate and organize all things, everything in our life for our good, like it says in Romans 8.28. That's his goal. Not that everything would be easy, but that it would be good for us, eternally good for us. So he is king. We need to stop doubting whether he is in control. We need to stop worrying whether someone actually is aware of what's going on in our lives. We need to stop turning to the things around us and making idols and figuring out something that we think might, might help us. We need to worship him for the king he is. And that's, that's the last part of the psalm, right? Declaring God is the true king over all the earth and then, and then kind of the implication is, well then, if that's true, what should we do? What should we do? Two things that we should do. Here's the first one. Because God is king, we should praise him in song. We should praise him in song. Look at this, verses five to seven. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king over all the earth. Sing praises with a song. It's a lot of sing praises in there. Seems really important and it is. It is. This call to sing praises to God is not an isolated incident. It's not just like a one-time thing. I mean, if you've read through any of the Psalms at all, you see it over and over and over again. Um, as a Christian, if, if you're familiar with kind of biblical theology, like what the Bible says your life should look like as a Christian, uh, hopefully you know already that our entire life should be lived in worship to God. Uh, we're told this very clearly. Our, our lives uh, should be like a living sacrifice. Um, that that's, that's the nature of our lives. Everything we do should be a way of saying, God, you're great. God, you're amazing. I want to live for you. But what's interesting is that over and over again, throughout the scriptures, we are told that a specific activity that is worshipful and something that we should make as a part, a regular routine of our lives is singing, praising God in song. There's about 150 times that it's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the book of Psalms is just like a worship hymnal. So it's, it's there at the center of our, of our Bible because it's what the people of God have always done. Uh, we see it in the New Testament also. Remember Paul uh, and Silas when they're in prison? What do they do all night? They start singing, which means that they had to have songs in their head already. They didn't just say, let's figure out, let's make up some songs. They were singing the songs that probably they had just sung in the gathering of God's people. It's just the normal part of, of the way that Christians operate. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see singing as well. We see there will be a new song that the saints sing about Jesus for all of eternity. See, singing isn't just something we do. It's, it's an essential expression of our heart. And everywhere in the world that you find Christians, you will find them singing. I was listening to an interview uh, a little while ago uh, from one of the leaders in the uh, underground house church movement in, in Iran. He was describing what it looked like to, for them to gather and um, like a church gathering. And not surprisingly, it was always in a secret location. Uh, he said it's always in like an interior room without windows. Uh, usually small groups, he said, when they would uh, come together, uh, they, they'd come and the first thing they would do, if they could, they would take the batteries out of their cell phones, uh, but all the phones they would put in the bathtub, cover it with towels, cover it with blankets, because people are always listening, close the door, go into the other room, and then he said the first thing that they would do is they would sing, but they would sing very quietly, and then they, and then they would 
someone would teach the word and they would have like a, a Bible study. But you almost think to yourself, man, why? I mean, if it's that dangerous, why bother singing? Like singing is by its very nature usually loud. He said they would sing in hushed tones. Why, why do that? Why with all the risk? I think the answer is because they can't not sing. Because th there's love in their heart. They want to express. They want to, they want to operate as the people of God always have. And so even if it's in hushed tones, even if it's quietly, they're going to sing. They're going to reveal the thing that is, that is on their heart. I mean, that's, that's the nature of singing. Uh, that's why so many songs are love songs, right? Because we're expressing our heart's desire for each other and a lot of other things. But, it's, but that's, what, that's what singing tends to be. You're singing usually. I mean, there's a lot of pop songs that are not... Not deep, but usually it's about something that's important to you. And that's what we're seeing here, that this, this, this singing that we are called to do, it's because it does give us the opportunity to kind of with abandon, reveal what's in our heart, reveal the thing that we love. For those of us who love God, we can't help but sing. Now, during COVID, this was kind of tested, wasn't it? Because during COVID, we were gathering in all different ways, uh, sort of gathering online in our living room, in small groups, in cars, outside, with masks, without masks. And the singing at different times was awkward, right? I'm not sure if you were standing in your living room singing like with neighbors. I don't know if it was strange or if you felt, felt awkward. You, you may have noticed even near the end, there was the, the public health regulation was to not sing. And you may have noticed we didn't, we didn't really mention that because... We felt like, look, there are certain things that we will modify as a church. There's a lot of, I mean, we'll go through a lot of hoops to, we want to strive to be law-abiding citizens, but there are certain things that it seems in the Bible that we just have to do. We have to preach the word. We have to talk about Jesus. We have to pray together. We, we have to sing. And so maybe that we do it quietly behind masks. It may, be, it may be in the future, frankly, that we ourselves are not in a room like this with the doors open wide, but we're somewhere in a basement. But the thing that we need to recognize is that if in our heart we love the Lord, then, then we're going to be people who sing. And praise God that right now we can do so loudly. And I encourage us to, to do that in, in a few moments. So first thing, implication. If God is king, we should sing praises to him. Second thing, we should exalt him with our lives. We should exalt him with our lives. These are the last few, couple of verses. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now, this final section uh, begins with the same main theme that God is ruling and, and reigning over the entire earth, but um, there's something interesting that happens in verse 9. Uh, verse 9 shifts into prophecy. Uh, it, it shifts beyond uh, what was happening back then when this was written, even beyond today, into the future, when God's kingdom will be fully revealed. And we see this in, in the shift of one word. So the word people goes from peoples to people, plural to singular. It begins the princes of the peoples. There it's talking about the many peoples of the world, many nations of the world. Um, what do they do? They gather as the people, singular, of the God of Abraham. And so what we're seeing here is that in history, there will be a shift. There will be a shift from the many nations, many peoples of the earth to then being one unified people who bow before Jesus, who recognize him as king. 
And the reason for this is given. It says, for the shields of the earth belong to God. That word shields, uh, sometimes if you have an NIV, it'll be translated maybe kings or leaders. It's a word that symbolizes authority. So what it's saying there is that everyone will unify under and recognize God as king because he actually has authority over all the authorities of the earth. All of those that right now think of themselves as sovereign, right? We call them the sovereigns, the kings, the queens, the presidents, the rulers, whoever they are, acting as if they have sole authority over their nation. There will be a day when everyone realizes that, in fact, their authority has come from a greater authority. And, and this is revealed when Jesus returns. Uh, the, the picture that we have of it in Revelation is of Jesus riding, riding down from the sky on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven. Um, he's got you know, eyes of fire, the word of God coming out of his mouth, and written on the side of him, on his thigh and on his cloak, is this. Here's Revelation 19.16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because that's who he is. He is the true king, the true king of, over all the earth, over all the nations of the earth, over all the leaders. That's why our psalm ends with, he is highly exalted, meaning that he is rightly lifted up. There will be a point in history when even those who reject Jesus will bow the knee. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted highly. Everyone on earth will be united on that point. In fact, here's how it's described. This is speaking about Jesus in Philippians. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This has not happened yet, obviously. Because the people of the world by and large, are blinded by the other false gods that they are worshiping, the other things they're living for, by, by sin itself. But for those of us who know who Jesus really is, the question for us is, are we exalting him now? Are we, are we seeing this psalm when it says he is highly exalted and thinking to ourselves, yeah, that, that is the cry of my heart. I mean, that's what I want people to see as they look at how I spend my time and my money, as they, as they look at what governs me morally, like what it is that's directing my life, do they see that Jesus is intentionally being exalted in my life? Because that doesn't just happen here when we come together and we sing. It needs to happen in every aspect of how we live. So look, it's the end of the sermon. And uh, usually at the end of the sermon, there's like a story or something, right? Somebody to kind of, usually try to find something to kind of grip your heart and compel you. It's good. I like, I like doing it. Um, in fact, you see it in the Bible, a lot of poetic like imagery and symbolism, right? It's kind of gripping us and, and trying to compel us to, to take this seriously and live it. But what I noticed is that this psalm doesn't have any of that kind of language. I mean, it doesn't really describe God in, you know, some majestic, powerful way, like the wings of an eagle or anything like that. It just kind of tells us what is true. The facts. God is king over all the earth. Either you see that or you don't. And if you don't see it, you, you don't have a lot to sing about, I think. If you don't see it, eventually you're, you're going to realize that the thing you're living for is, 
is not able to actually help you. It's just a piece of wood. It's a part of what God has made, and it may be good. It may be wonderful for here and now, but it's it's not really going to help when you need it. But if you do believe, if you do see that God is king, then you already have everything you need to praise God in song, to live a life that exalts him. And so the that is the exhortation from this song, that we would not sing quietly, that we would not live passively, that we would rejoice truly, that we would live lives that uh, exemplify what is told to us in verses 1 and 2. Listen to what it says. The last thing I'll read. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Praise God, for he is king. We're going to worship him together in just a moment, but I'm going to pray first. Lord God, we thank you for you are king. We thank you. We praise you for you actually do help us in spite of our sin, in spite of our blindness, in spite of our waywardness and our hard, hard-heartedness. Time and again, you, you reveal yourself to us. You humble us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that whatever is going on in our lives, that we would recognize that it, it's your love that is directing the events of our lives. It's your power. You are revealing yourself to us more and more. It may be difficult. It may be trying. These circumstances right now may be so difficult, but God, you are working everything for our good, for our eternal good, which must mean that you will do everything that you can to bring us to the point of seeing our need for you and to then respond in praise and worship and exaltation. I pray, Lord, we would do that now in song and we would do it indeed with our whole lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.